I'm visiting, uh, or if you're new, uh, very simply what we do is we uh, just teach through books of the Bible because we love to see um, what Jesus is and who Jesus is and what he has done all as an act of worship. So uh, every part of the service from start to finish that you're going to see is really an act of worship from our hearts to our great God who we believe rescued and ransomed us from sin and to himself. So there are, there are many ways that we worship Jesus, but fundamentally here as we come and as we gather, uh, we worship Jesus by singing songs. That's why we just sang and declared these, these things about about Jesus as to who he is and what he's done for us. We also uh, worship Jesus by reading the scriptures and studying the scriptures so that we can see more about the person and work of Jesus Christ. We also uh, worship Jesus by uh, taking the Lord's Supper each week where we're nourished by being reminded of the benefits that we've received in the broken body, shed blood of Jesus Christ. And lastly, we uh, worship Jesus by giving generously because God gave most generously in his son to us and we give in the small silver boxes on the back wall. Um, Luke chapter 18 is where we're going to be. If you're just jumping in or new, uh, the gospel of Luke is basically this, this gospel account that's been written by this guy, um, Luke, who's a physician by trade. He went with Paul. He traveled with Paul. He saw lots of things, and he's basically laying before us these life and teachings of Jesus, not so that you would just simply know facts and know truths, but so you'd be transformed by the things that you see and that you read. That's why I'm going to repeatedly say over and over again that we don't just want information. We want transformation, right? It doesn't do us any good to come in here and just learn some truths about a book, but let that sit in our souls, sit in our hearts, and transform us in how we see the world, see God, see ourselves, and see others. And so um, Luke has been writing this to Theophilus, this guy who is likely a, a Roman official who might be skeptic of the things of Christianity, and so he wants to disarm those skeptics, skepticis, skep, skepticisms, is that a word? Skeptical thoughts that he has so that he might walk rightly, understand rightly more about who Jesus is. So uh, here, Luke 18, and you gotta understand, I keep reminding you, you gotta look at the Bible, look how books are built and that they build, okay? So gospels aren't necessarily totally chronological in every last piece that you see. What you gotta remember is that we believe in a divinely inspired book, which, we, which means we believe that God wrote through human authors. And so everything that you read, everything that you see is purposeful, providential, and divine. So where Luke lays each piece of scripture in this book is so that we would see and understand something maybe behind the scenes. And so if you remember last week, we saw where uh, Jesus basically reveals and shows that he's after the God of our hearts, not just chaining behavior in us, that we need not behavior modification, but worship alteration, that we need to see God and worship him and have hearts transformed. So the ruler walks up to Jesus. He tells him he's kept all the commandments. And Jesus says, well, I found the thing you lack. I found the thing that you, uh, that's missing in you, the worship that you lack for me. So go sell everything you have. It had nothing to do with money or possessions or anything like that. It was really to reveal, hey, you love that more than me. So Jesus says, I'm going to move on. And then he keeps walking. And here as he's walking, he's going to show us actually how it is that we not are only just made nice, we're made new, right? The, the good news of the gospel so that we're transformed. And so uh, he's going to remind them of how the prophets spoke about this reality. So here Jesus tells the disciples of how that transformation happens. Verse 31 is where we're going to pick it up and we'll carry all the way to the end of chapter 18 this morning. And taking the 12, he said to them, right, so Jesus is walking, and as he walks, he talks, he teaches, he preaches, he walks through villages, he takes the 12, he looks at them, and he says something. He says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man, that's Jesus, by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they could not grasp what was 
said. Okay, so um, Jesus is on his way towards Jerusalem. We learn from chapter nine on that his face is fixed. He's ready to give his life for sinners, right? He's ready to ransom sinners to himself. He's on his way to Jerusalem. And on the way, he looks at his disciples and says, hey, you know where we're going to Jerusalem? Like, this is where I have to go. This is where everything that you studied in the synagogue, everything you read in the Old Testament, everything you've heard is going to happen. It's all gonna come true. All the pain I'm gonna feel, all that I'm gonna have to overcome to rescue sinners, sinners unto a holy, righteous God who dwells in infinite perfections. Okay, this all has to happen. And remember, all the, prophet, all the prophets said this would happen. So he just continues to retell and retell and retell. And you'll see this in the gospel. We've been seeing it. He continues to retell all that would happen to him. And all the while, they don't get it. They just continue to not get it. And so Jesus is explaining here that God has put together in his infinite wisdom his perfect word that testifies to himself. So if there's one thing we gotta get about the Bible, it really has hardly anything to do with you as the center of your universe and everything to do with Jesus as the center of the universe. And as we understand Jesus as the center of the Bible, the center of the universe, all the planets in our life start to form and orbit rightly. And so here Jesus shows that God put together this word and that the scriptures, the very word of God, is unlike any other book that's been written or ever written because it prophesies, it tells things, it foretells things that will happen. And when God says something will happen, we can be sure of it. So, so, so here's why we love the Bible too, is because it's a book that is divinely inspired, written by God through human authors. This is over 1,500 years of things that have been written and laid down from God himself through people, things that prophets spoke about and writers wrote. You've got all these different time periods, all these different authors on all different continents, and you get the synonymous storyline and purpose that Jesus is the center of everything. And so here, Jesus reminds them of prophecy, and he's really prophesying himself. So, so here is what the prophecy is. He's saying, according to the Old Testament, and, and here's something just to understand real quickly. If you're wondering about prophecy, um, in the Old Testament, it basically is that God would, on behalf of himself, send someone to say something, right, uh, something that will happen in the future. Now, the only way you knew it was a true prophet of God is if it came, became 100% true all the time in every detail in the exact way it was said it would happen. Now, sometimes they'd prophesy something that would happen in a week, in weeks to come, in months to come, or years to come, but it always was fulfilled perfectly as God said. Now, if it ended up not being fulfilled as God had said, then you wouldn't trust that prophet. You wouldn't trust the word of God through that man. And so here Jesus is showing that we trust God's word, we trust what the prophets have said because he's gonna fulfill all of that. And here, Jesus is telling us again that he's predicting his life, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection that all of the prophecies spoke of. All of history, all of Jesus' ministry, all the books of the Bible are ultimately about the person and work of Jesus. That's why this book is not primarily about spirituality. Those things are in there. Like this book is not primarily about you being a good person and doing good things. That's in there. This book is not primarily about histories or kings or genealogies or generations. That stuff's in here. But it's not primarily about any of those things. It's not primarily about religion. Yeah, there are religious things in here. There are things that people did. There's liturgical things. There's worship elements. But that's not the fundamental reason we have this book. The fundamental reason we look at the book is so that we can see that everything, every scripture, every part points to the glorifying God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we see Jesus, the way that all the scriptures point to him and display him and hold them out to him, we can enjoy that and be transformed by seeing that. That's why the scriptures will say that as we 
see Christ, we're, we're transformed. As we behold his glory, we're, we're changed, right? That has to happen by understanding first that you're not in here, right? That's why we all run to Barnes and Noble and not to this, right? Because we wanna know how we can be made whole outside of the one thing that says this is how you're made new. And so we look at the Bible, we look at the scriptures to see that it all centers on Jesus and Jesus is reminding them here that man, those things are in there but it all revolves around me and here Jesus is prophesying the climax of his great gospel story. He's reminding them that the prophets foretold that this awesome thing would happen. He's predicting his suffering and his death, burial and resurrection and specifically for sin and rising again. Now, Every single one that Jesus mentions here has been previously foretold by the prophets. Now, if you want to break down your Bible in the past, what's awesome is you have like the Psalms. That's a good spot to be. Those are written about a thousand years before Christ lived and was born. You've got prophets like Isaiah. That was like 700 years before Jesus was born, right? Those, those prophets spoke of things that would happen to Jesus. Also, most of them having to do with the crucifixion element. And crucifixion didn't even exist when they wrote it. Crucifixion wasn't even a, a theory. It wasn't even an idea. And yet they're, they're foretelling that this great Messiah would come and suffer in this way of being on a cross, nails and feet, you know, done on that wood. Like that, that doesn't make sense to people, yet we see the God of the universe foretells all things and holds all things and knows all things. So this is not anything new. I want to give you just a couple um, that, that we would see in this that Jesus is referring to as he's walking with the disciples and saying, hey, you know everything that you read in the Old Testament? You know all the texts that the, that the, that the uh, priest would get up and read you in the synagogue? Yeah, those are about me. Um, just a few, Psalm 16, 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. A thousand years before Jesus is born, God says Jesus will die. But he's not gonna stay in the grave. He's not gonna stay in Sheol. He's gonna rise. Psalm 22, one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus says that on the cross. We're all probably familiar with that. As he takes his last breath, he says that. That was written a thousand years before he said it. That he's gonna say this. This is just showing Jesus knows the Bible, is fulfilling the Bible. Psalm twenty-two sixteen. dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men have encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is a clear prophecy of crucifixion that nails are gonna be driven through his feet and through his hands. This is the way that the suffering servant, the man of sorrows, is going to die. And it's going to happen at the hands of godless men. That's the word for dogs. It's always just godless men, wicked men, pagan men, people that don't love God, love the God that you love, don't serve the God that you serve. This is the type of people that will do this. All these written way before crucifixion existed. You've got Isaiah, right, 700 years. Now, if you look at Isaiah and you just read Isaiah like chapters 40 to like 64 and on, like that's all dealing with pretty much Jesus' future death and suffering. So as Isaiah is saying those things, you gotta read it through the lens of the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And here are just a couple, Isaiah 50 verse six, I gave my back to those who would strike and my cheeks to those who would pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Here, guys, get, I always say get in the story, right? Get in the story. Jesus is walking and he says, hey, you know everything the prophet said about me? That's gonna be fulfilled. All that I would suffer, all that I would do. He's linking them back to these texts. He's going, man, don't you know Isaiah 50 says, man, yeah, I'm gonna give my back, I'm gonna be flogged. Right, three inch long shards of glass baked in the Judean sun for weeks so that when they hit my back, it doesn't just come out, it rips flesh too. I mean, these are things that he's describing here, showing here. 
Jesus had these things in mind that he would be bloodied, that he would be mortified, that they would pull out the beard of his cheeks. I mean, Isaiah is that specific. This was just to show massive disrespect to Jesus when they, when they yanked out his beard. And it even says they're going to spit on him. Isaiah 52. 13, behold, my servant will act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up. That's just crucifixion. Imagery of crucifixion. And he shall be exalted. And many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond any human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So Isaiah is saying 700 years before Jesus was ever born or lived or died or rose, before anything happened, before crucifixion was an idea, he's saying, hey, and when this suffering servant comes, when this Messiah, when this Redeemer, when this Rescuer comes, he's going to be so badly marred, so bloodied, so tortured that people are going to go, is that a man? Is that a person? Is that an animal? Is that, I can't even, I can't even, I don't even recognize him. All prophesied, all foretold. And notice, notice, Jesus, as we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus never foretells the cross without foretelling his resurrection. You can almost see that in almost every place you see Jesus make a prophecy of himself, linking it back to a prophecy that was of himself. And it'll constantly show that, man, he knew before he could get the crown there would be a cross. He's not surprised, he's not a victim. He knew every bit of what would happen. He knew the shame that would lay before him, but he knew the glory that would lay before him. He knew the malice of men in their hearts, yet he knew the power of God and what he could do. He had a joy set before him, Hebrews 12 says, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. You know what's so profound about that text in my mind? Is that Jesus had joy set before him all the enduring, all the suffering, all the flogging, all the shaming, all the spitting, all the beard yanking, all of that was going to happen to him, yet he knew the joy set before him was, yes, the glory of God and the being pleased at that, but it was also him knowing that he was gonna ransom and purchase sons and daughters to the Father. Man, the part of the joy set before him was knowing that our sinful hearts, our sinful bent, the fracture that re- resolves in all of us can't be made right unless he makes it right, right? The prophets spoke over and over. We learned last week, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it, you can't do it. You keep breaking the law, you keep worshiping things outside of God, so I'm gonna do it for you. I'm gonna send a Messiah, I'm gonna send a redeemer, I'm gonna send a rescuer, I'm gonna send a mender. And then he says, hey, here he is. Here's Jesus who's going to do all that for us. He had on his mind the saving of you and me that's incredible that that gave him joy because there were so many things that were set before him and enduring the cross despising its shame and absolutely one of the things was him rescuing sinners and making reconciliation with God profound that God delights in doing that like I mean part of the awe of the cross is is his mighty love and pursuit of you despite you Right? I mean, that, that's what gives Christians joy. That's what, that's what causes joy and affection to bubble up in our hearts. We realize that, man, he did that knowing full well everything we would do, right? So many of us live in this compartmentalized Christianity where we go, all right, well, he finally looked down, saw us starting to act well, acting moral, acting righteous. Where our, tents, our, our church attendance started to increase. Our prayers started to gravitate towards his name. Then he said, here we go. Right now I'm getting you in the kingdom. No, he full well knew according to Romans and many other texts that while you were sinners, while you were far from God, while you were in rebellion, while you did not want him, he said, I want you. 
I want to make you clean. I'm going to take away your shame and make you new. I'm going to make you right. I'm going to put in you my spirit. I'm going to adopt you as one of my own. That's joy set before the Jesus Christ, before he is brutally beaten and hanging and suffering. That's, I mean, we could just sit on that for weeks, could we not? And enjoy that and taste that and see that. So there's many elements to what Jesus is saying here. Here's the thing, verse, verse 34. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. Luke just said the same thing three ways. If you're like, man, what's in the Greek? What's okay, listen, the original language is this. They didn't get it, they didn't get it, and they still didn't get it. That's what Luke just said. Like, that's very simply what he said. They, they do not understand what Jesus is saying. And, and here's the thing. you got a lot of critics, a lot of skeptics out there who say, well, see, I mean, if Jesus really prophesied, really foretold his death, really knew what was happening, then they wouldn't have been so shocked when he said it. No, they didn't have a compartment for this. It had nothing to do with them not hearing it from Jesus. Because a lot of skeptics and a lot of critics will say, well, what they did was Jesus didn't actually say these things. So later on after it happened, we went back like Christians and people and then we inserted that Jesus said it. Now, let, 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 let me help you. The disciples did not have any type of framework for a suffering Messiah being crucified. That wasn't in the theological bank account. They had this man-made, constructed view of this building up of this massive coronation that would happen when Jesus came, when the Messiah came. There would be celebration. There would be triumph. There wouldn't be torture. I mean, there was going to be celebration, not crucifixion. They were going to be able to hold him up high. He was going to overthrow the Roman garrison. They were going to get freedom. They were going to be under oppression of the government that they felt. Man, they, were, they were thrilled that Jesus was here. So every time Jesus would open his mouth to talk about suffering, talk about blood, talk about crucifixion, man, that just wasn't even in the theological bank. Go, well, Jesus, what are you talking about? You know, the Messiah that, that was promised, right? I mean, he's the one who's going to free us. He's the one who's going to rescue us. Yeah, but in order to get there, you've got to go through the cross. For any of that to happen... Not just because I'm here. The idea of a crucified Messiah was ridiculous to them. You have to know that. It was ridiculous. This is 1 Corinthians 1. Because they expected a Messiah who brought life, not a Messiah who was going to be killed. Look at this, 1 Corinthians 1. For the word of God of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Okay, so a crucified Messiah to Gentiles first is foolishness, right? They knew all their gods, they had all their deities, and the idea of one of their deities coming down and being killed by human hands by men was ridiculous. So it's foolishness to them. I know our deities. We know our gods. And the idea of them coming down and them being killed by man-made pe people, I mean, that's just that's foolishness. It doesn't make sense. To the Jews, it says it was a stumbling block. It was such a massive barrier they could not get past. The Messiah doesn't come to die, and he certainly doesn't come to die at the hand of Gentiles. Gentiles aren't going to kill him. And then this Isaiah 53 of God killing God, like what does that mean? We see it not as cosmic child abuse. We see Jesus willingly saying, I'm giving up my spirit. You see all the prophecies in the Old Testament, him saying, I willingly turned my back. I willingly gave myself. 
He gladly submitted to the will of the Father so that he could accomplish his will and purposes and bring great glory to his name. So you've got the Gentiles that think it's foolish, it's folly to the Jews. He certainly doesn't come to be killed. And he certainly doesn't come to suffer the most horrific, embarrassing, cruel, humiliating death naked on a cross. I mean, understand, crucifixion, they didn't even crucify Roman citizens. Like it was the scum of the scum were crucified. Not a Roman citizen and just total outcasts. The Messiah is going to be crucified like that? It was such a stumbling block. It was such a barrier for Jews. And it was foolishness to Gentiles who love their deities and love their gods. So critics love to assault Jesus saying that he didn't know about his death and resurrection. But Jesus is no victim, friends. Jesus is not surprised. Jesus knew absolutely what was before him. It was all planned by God, prophesied by God, unmistakably in the Old Testament down to the finest detail. And all the pictures of the Old Testament sacrifices as we've talked at length about through this gospel provide a very clear path to the final, complete, suffering servant, man of sorrows, who would once and for all satisfy God with a sacrifice for sin. He does it. He does it. That, that's the really good news in this. And so Jesus is continuing to, to demonstrate this. And so the disciples don't understand, and now Jesus is gonna, Luke's gonna put in here this story that happens to show us how we can understand. Verse 35, and as he drew near to Jericho, there was a blind man sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front of him rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus is continuing his walk to Jerusalem. It's Passover week. It's important to know. So it's a celebratory time. It's this annual time where people would all trek to Jerusalem to make sacrifices for their sin, to worship God. That's where the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies. They would make atonement for their sin through their sacrifices. And, and as they went, they would make pit stops at different villages and places to pick up food, pick up belongings. So there are thousands of people trekking up to Jerusalem. So, so begging was actually very common during these seasons. Because all the beggars would come out, they would try to beg, they'd try to ask for money because there was a lot of people, there was a lot of buying, there was a lot of surplus. So it's not unusual as they're heading, they stop, take a pit stop at this place, Jericho, one of these small towns on the way to Jerusalem, and there's a beggar, and because he's blind, he's unemployed, so he's begging, he's wanting food, he's wanting needs, and, and as he's sitting there, this is so amazing. And understand this, as rabbis like, walked, it was very common for rabbis to teach as they walked. So what happens is, this is probably what's going on. Jesus is walking and Jesus is teaching, right? They always gave a discourse as they were walking. So they're walking, he's teaching, and all of a sudden crowds start gathering in. They really want to know what he has to say. Right now it's been two and a half years in his ministry. People know who he is. They've seen miracles. They've seen healings. Everybody wants to get in on a good word from Jesus. Not because they all really like him or love him, but because they just want to be amused by him, right? So he's walking. He's walking towards Jerusalem and all these people around, and there's a blind beggar sitting, and he's one of probably many beggars, and he hears this like unusual murmuring, right? He, he hears this strange crowd that seems to be walking towards him. So he asks somebody, hey, what's going on? Like I, I sense commotion. And somebody goes, oh, Jesus of Nazareth is coming by. This triggers something in him. And he yells out something that apparently no other beggar yelled. Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. And all the people are like, hey, shut up. Hey, be quiet. I'm trying to listen to what he has to say. So he doesn't care, so he just yells out again. <laughs> Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now you have to understand because this, you could easily breeze past this, the significance of, of, of son of David as you read this because I really believe he's showing and demonstrating and revealing his belief about Jesus in his declaration. Because theologically, son of David means to say, you're king of kings. It means to ascribe to him a position, a place of authority, a place of kingship. So as everybody's walking by, he's yelling out of the crowd, hey, Jesus, I know you're son of David. I know you're king of kings. Right now, this goes back to the Davidic covenant we know of back in 1 Samuel where Jesus makes a, or God makes a promise to David. David's a king, right? And he says, hey, you know how, how your rulership is happening? Well, there's gonna be a king that's gonna come and he's gonna rule and his kingdom's never gonna end. There's gonna be peace. There's gonna be perfect justice, perfect harmony, perfect shalom. It's gonna be wonderful. This God is going to send a king. So it's this Davidic promise, this Davidic covenant of this king that's gonna come, but he's gonna be the king of kings. Just like David was a king, he's not gonna be a little king made by human hands, he's going to be God. He's going to be reigner and ruler over all things. And so here was what amazing, it was amazing, is I'm picturing this story. You got people longing for this king, like longing for the shalom, longing for everything to be made right, longing for this long-awaited Messiah to come, like that's all what all the Jews wanted. And the only guy in the crowd who knows it's him as people are waiting, he goes, hey, there he is. Like, like, that's the son of David. Like, that's the guy of the Davidic promise. That's Jesus the Messiah. Maybe he heard about him. Maybe God just illuminated his heart and mind in the only ways that he could. We don't know how that happened. But in some way, shape, or form, he knew the king you're waiting for is right in front of you. Son of David, have mercy on me. You're the only one who can possibly give me mercy for my wrecked heart and my wrecked soul. And by the way, this was a terrifyingly courageous thing to say and scream out in the midst of a Roman government because Caesar's king. And he's basically saying, Caesar ain't king. Jesus is in front of everybody. He's bold. And he knows who Jesus is. Verse 40, and Jesus stops. I love that. I love reading in the Gospels where Jesus stops. He's doing his discourse, he's teaching, he's walking. Discourse is forgotten. There's a man in need. No, no. no. Bring him to me. And Jesus commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. So Jesus stops. It's just so good, the busyness. Some of you feel like you're outside of the grasp of salvation. You're sitting there as the blind beggar on the side of the road. And Jesus comes by, and yet he stops and notices and pays attention. He's not too busy in all the governing of the universe and upholding the world by the prominence of his power. He stops, he sees, he hears this man who ascribes to him a right declaration. Son of David, have mercy on me. This tells us something about Jesus. In the moment of a discourse like any rabbi, he stops at the blind man's cry and he goes, bring him to me. That's such good news to those of us who understand our weary souls. 
For those who understand our need for mercy, right? And he's screaming out for it. We see the, the pleading in this man. And I love this. He says to him, what do you want me to do for you? He says, well, I want you to give me my sight back. Now, to me, I'm like, that's such an, like, Jesus, why would you ask that? Like, that's like you going starving to a restaurant and the waiter going, hey, what do you guys want to do tonight? We want to eat. I'm starving, right? I mean, there's a blind man, what do you want me to do for you? Well, I want you to give my sight back. But Jesus always has meaning in this. So Jesus asks the question. He knows what the man's gonna say, but he wants to demonstrate what's really happening in this man, what's really healing this man. Because he finishes here, and he says, your faith has made you well. That's a profound statement that Jesus has right here. Now, before you get there, before you get there, as this man is healed and given fully fortified sight, we don't know how long he was blind. He could have been blind for most of his life. He could have been blind for a short while. We can guess a long time when he opens his eyes, what is the first thing he sees? The face of Jesus Christ. You know, when all of us perish from this life, if it's before Christ returns, we will close our eyes and when we open them, we will see the face of Jesus I mean, I was just thinking about that this week. Can you imagine that day? When you actually see, your eyes actually see the risen Jesus Christ. God incarnate, God in his fullness of glory. I mean, the radiance of God himself, the exact imprint of his nature. I mean, the God that we've been reading about who became a man and was fully God and fully human and didn't, you know, die with, with, our, with, with sin in his body but took all of our sin, right? Becoming that cursed force. Can you imagine the righteousness that was given to us? He's standing there. We're gonna see him. You're actually gonna see him. Like, that's reality. Things become so ethereal, right, as we read the scriptures. But I mean, we're actually going to see the face of Jesus Christ one day. Those of us who love him and know him, we will cherish that sight. And here we see this man see, foreshadowing what all those who are in Christ will see and enjoy one day in its fullness. But here, outside of that, as he sees the face of Jesus, he says to him, your faith has made you well. Now, this is so important. Faith in what? Faith that he could heal? No. Faith he was the son of David. Faith he was the king of kings. Faith that he wasn't just a man, he was God. Faith that he wasn't just a role model, he was savior. Like the fact of who he was actually saved him. Yes, it, was, it gave him spiritual sight and physical sight. Yes, Jesus graciously, kindly opened up his eyes to physically see, but more profoundly, he made him well in his soul. Like he gave him spiritual sight to see him be saved and be made well in the face of Jesus Christ and seeing Jesus Christ. See, the object of your faith is what matters. It's all about this. It's not how strong your faith is, it's what your faith is in. Right? So your faith doesn't heal you, Christ heals you. Right? Your faith doesn't save you, Christ saves you. So, so all of our faith, all of our bank, all of our trusting is in the God who saves us, not in how big our faith is. It's all about the object of what we're putting our trust in. That's salvation. We talked about this months ago in Luke, right? That, that, that faith, by definition, look at Hebrews 11 and other places, is trusting what God has said and what God has done and banking all of your life on it. Well, well the biggest place you can put your bank account is in Jesus, the truest fulfillment of all that God has said and done and is. 
So this man's faith was in Jesus Christ. And that faith made him well. And that faith made him see physically and it made him see spiritually. It healed him completely. And faith in Christ, I love this, leads to worship. It's celebrating, right? A faith-filled heart is a heart that worships God. This is what we learned last week, right? That's why I always say right action without a heart transformation will always lack joy and always lack worship. That, that's why Jesus will relentlessly go after your heart when you just want him to go after your behavior. He wants to change you. He wants to make you new. He wants your heart to love things differently and see things differently. And I love this. He walks with Jesus. Is that not just a demonstration of a Christian, right? You, you see Jesus. You believe who he is. You put your full trust in that. He opens your blind eyes spiritually, your incurable condition of spiritual blindness. You see him for the first time. You actually love him. You actually want him. You actually see him as saving. You actually see him as good. You actually see him as all that he is, not what everybody else and culture and everything else has said. You actually see Jesus in the fullness of what the scriptures have revealed him to be and you grab hold of him and you love him and you walk with him and as you walk with him you worship him and as you worship him other people are being witness to the greatness of God in your life like you're just seeing the trajectory of a person becoming a Christian worshiping God and other people witnessing him becoming a Christian and witnessing and glorifying God for the profound nature of what he's done in your life is that you I love what Jesus has done I love how he's changed me I love let me tell you about it wow, that's incredible. I mean, that's how he's transformed you. That's how he's changed affections in you. That's how he's given you different drives and loves and reasons to be and exist. That's why you operate the way that you do. Not because you're trying to achieve some moral standard of holiness, not because you're trying to appease a God with more favor, but because a God is supremely pleased in what Jesus has already done for you. And so you enjoy that and just run into that every single day. And, and, and people witness that. So how does this all connect? Right. Uh, very simply, um, we saw a lot about Christ being the light of the world. Christ didn't just bring light to a dark world, which he absolutely did. He brought sight to blind souls. That's an aspect of why Jesus came. Now, the Bible's going to compare us into a lot of things. One of the things it actually compares it to is blindness. Your sin is blindness. So here's what that means, very simply. Because we're all by nature and choice sinners, right? So, so Genesis 3 on, because we have all followed suit of our mom and dad, right? Because Adam and Eve first decided, hey, I'm gonna worship myself, worship what I want, believe the lie of the enemy and not believe the truths of God. Because I'm gonna choose that over him, now everything is fractured, everything's broken, everything's a mess, and the world continues to work that way until Jesus comes and enlightens our souls and our eyes to understand how it's really wired to work, how good he really is, how saving he really is, how glorious he really is. And so until you actually become a Christian, which the Bible calls regeneration, it's just a big word for being changed, being made new in the gospel, being declared righteous because of what Christ has done for you, not because of anything you've done on your behalf, um, you're spiritually blind, so you don't see Christ for how he truly is and you don't see yourself for how you truly are. So we walk in ignorance. And I always say this, even though we flunked first grade, we think we know more than God and we think we know how to see ourselves. And God, the one who's ruling and reigning, is going, um, no, this is actually how you should see yourself and this is actually how you should see me. And so because this, of this reality of us being blinded to sin, those who do not see Jesus as good, saving, righteous, lovely, they're not unintelligent. They're not dumb. Like, like, you're not gonna make someone see by screaming at them. 
You're not going to make someone see by hating them. Jesus Christ alone is what makes people see. Jesus Christ alone is what recovers sight to the blind and raises to life that which is dead. Jesus Christ alone is the one who makes people new. Maybe this explains some of your heartache and your frustration with family, neighbors, coworkers, friends. I remember a conversation just recently that we had, Kristen and I, and we were talking, and I thought we were like getting somewhere profound. It was great. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, he's great. Yeah, believe, yeah, the Bible, yeah. And then eventually we got to, um, yeah, it's amazing that he was God. What? I don't see that. Oh, you don't see that. Well, that, that's kind of a big deal. I was like, that, that, that's kind of a, a fork in the road. Well, not really. Yeah, it is. Because if he wasn't God, he couldn't save you. If it wasn't fully human without sin, he couldn't rescue you from your shame and your sin and become your sin for you. The deity and humanity has to be together. I mean, you have to have both of those things. Well, I don't really see that. Have you heard that? Um, do you believe that Jesus is a good teacher? Oh, yeah, yeah, I believe, I see that. Believe he's a good orchestrator of, of events? Yeah, I see that. Now, do you believe he's God? No, I don't see that. Do you, do you believe that he's gonna return again? I don't see that. Do you believe that he determines and, and, and asks you and, and commands obedience? Well, I definitely don't see that. We see it all the time. Why do we see differently than them? Because you've been given spiritual sight. Because you've tr- trusted in Jesus Christ to resurrect that that can't resurrect yourself, to give you sight which could not give you sight. You've trusted in something outside of you, a power more profound than your energy and your morality and your persuasiveness and your philosophy and your ideology and all of the things that you think are cool and good. You've trusted in a power that's outside of you that gave you spiritual sight. And when we're spiritually blind, brothers and sisters, we don't have the ability to, to cure an incurable condition. This man, this blind beggar, had an incurable blindness. He couldn't make himself see, yet Jesus could. And we don't see ourselves for who we are. Some of you think, man, I'm, I'm really kind of a good person, right? Some of you think, man, I'm so bad, so much baggage, I feel so condemned, so guilty. So both parties think I'm totally out of the realm of salvation. You know, both are awful. So whether you think that you're too good for salvation, whether you think you're out of the realm of salvation, one leads to pride, one leads to despair, none lead to Jesus. So that's why Jesus constantly in his gospel says, look at me, see me, behold me. Everything the prophets talked about, man, I'm the answer to those things. I'm the resurrected power, therefore we are all the blind man. The sin nature that's incurable unless we experience a resurrection power. That's why I love that Jesus always connects his resurrection with the foretelling of his cross. He lets people know, yeah, it's not just the suffering and anguish and grief that's gonna take all of your sin, man. There's gotta be a backstory to it. Like there's gotta be something after that, right? If he stays dead, terrible savior, not God, no salvation. Paul says we should all be pitied and just go do other things, right? This church gathering is a terrible hobby. We're idiots for gathering here if there's no resurrection, but there is. On the third day, he will rise. The prophets foretold it. Jesus said it would happen, and he did do it. And because of that, we can trust that the object of our faith is more powerful than the sin that entangles and enslaves us. Because he can resurrect dead hearts. So we cannot receive sight through our will, through our positive thinking. We can only receive sight through a resurrected son of David, a king of kings, 
Now, if you circle back, Jesus is foretelling that by his life, death, resurrection, through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, he will give spiritual sight to the blind. That's what Luke wants us to see. And I want to end with this one text that I was just so encouraged by and so humbled by this week. Ephesians 1.17. This is how Paul talks about this. You're going to see lots of places you see enlightenment, spiritual sight, and the resurrection. Always connected together. Here, Ephesians 1.17, we're going to end here. Look at what Paul writes. That he may, that's God, that he may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. It's the same way to say, being able to see with your heart. That you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? This is the best part. According to the working of his great might. What great might that's working in us? What is this great power that's going to enable that? I mean, when I can't see the hope which he's called me to, when I can't understand the glorious inheritance that is laid before me, when I don't understand the immeasurable greatness of even his power, when I understand the thing, what does it work in me to help me see that? That he worked in Christ. What did he work in Christ when he raised him from the dead? That power. And seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So try to get here with me. The same supernatural, God-saturated power that actually took the dead body of Jesus and mended broken bones and allowed blood to flow and repumped the heart and allowed oxygen to fill the lungs. The same, all the fractured pieces, brutally beaten, marred, couldn't even be distinguished among men. No skin, flesh, bones, sword thrust in his side, water and blood coming out, signifying he's dead. Thousands of pounds of spices placed around him, embalmment, put in a tomb, three days. The same God, resurrected power that rectified, ordered, put back Jesus in all the perfection that was his health and rose him from the dead. That is the power that enables your heart to see. Like you have to have a power outside of you. Now, here's the problem. None of us run there. We run to Barnes and Noble, right? I mean, what's the latest book that either Oprah gave or I don't know, Dr. Phil or somebody that says I can be made whole? Like where can I find that? No, you don't need a power. Nothing intrinsically in you can fix you. I'm gonna say that for the rest of my days as long as I preach because that is the best news anyone could ever hear. Nothing in you intrinsically could ever fix you. So you're gonna go searching around and all these other things and all these other books looking for some magic trick that'll suddenly happen when all the while outside of you a profound power has already happened with no help from you, no asking of you, no demand of you, and it's Jesus Christ and Christ alone so we constantly boast in his work and his resurrection resurrection and his death and his imputation and his reconciling work on the cross for us on our behalf because we have a Jesus who had a great might at work within him that is nothing you could ever have. And he says, hey, you want your spiritual eyes to be enlightened? You got to trust in that. You got to behold that. You have to see that. You have to look at that. That's why prophecy, right? Prophecy. We don't want people to just tell us what we think. We know what God's word says. That's why we're so careful. Someone says, hey man, I got a cute word from the Lord. Okay, well, let's see if it matches up with here. Because prophecy is only what God has already said. 
So we're good Bible students, we're good worshipers by saying, okay, prophecy today is not just the foretelling God has said at the end of this book, hey, I've already said everything I wanna say, all my prophecies in here, it's my fullest revelation. You add a word to that, you're gonna be a curse. Okay, I don't want that. Okay, so we look at this and we say, okay, what has God already said? That's why we constantly, even as you hear me, you hear preachers, you hear people, is it in there? Does it say that? Is that what the text says? I wanna wanna put it on the screen so you can see it. What are we looking at? What's changing us? What's transforming us? What are we after? He says very clearly, and that is why we don't have the power to raise to life that which was dead. We do not have the power to give sight to that which is blind. Yet thank you, God, your incarnate son does. Thank goodness. That's why we don't celebrate us and continually celebrate him. It's because of the resurrection that he can give you spiritual sight this morning. So, so here, as we land the plane, here's what I wanna ask. Um, I wonder uh, what areas this morning you need to see him more clearly. And this is Christian and non-Christian. So for some of you, you don't see Jesus as saving as all. You don't see him as glorious. You don't see him as true. You don't see him as holy. You don't see him as worshipful. You don't see him as deserving. You don't see any of those things. You don't see him as the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So you need to ask God. Say, man, have mercy on me. May God help me to see Jesus as that. That's what Paul's praying for. Paul's praying in this passage of the Ephesians. He's asking them, please, would you help them to see that? And I know you can because of your power that was at work in Jesus and because you're a risen Savior. Some of you, you need to see his compassion. If you don't see it, ask him to show you the compassion of Jesus. Uh, Some of you don't see his suffering and him identifying with you in your heartache. Maybe you need to see that more clearly this morning. That, that man, he was betrayed. He knows what it's like to be totally abandoned by those who he thought loved him. Man, lean into that comforting cushion of Jesus who says, I'm your high priest who can empathize. The reason I can be a high priest and empathize is because is I rose again. So, some of you need to see his mercy this morning. You think you're outside the realm of salvation. You, you look at your rap sheet, you look at all the sin, you look at all the struggle, you... You need to see his abounding mercy towards you that no cleaning up in you is ever gonna fix you. He wants you as you are in your sin to make you new, to make you a new creation so that you now worship God and love the holiness of God. Some of you, maybe you need to see his justice this morning. Maybe you thought he was just someone who you could mock and belittle. Maybe you need to see that he is the God that will return and judge the living and the dead that he does sentence judgment, that there is eternity that awaits. Ask God, say, God, reveal yourself to me if you're real and, and this is true. Would you enlighten my eyes to see that? Would you give me spiritual sight? I've heard stories of people in this room that's happened to you. Praise the Lord. Or man, I, I came like the first few weeks and thought, man, Mike, you're a nut. This is dumb. This is stupid. And now I'm like, I love, I love Jesus. I see how he's transforming me. I, love, I actually have a desire for the Bible now. I go into a community group. I, I love coming to worship. I, what happened? Well, now you spiritually see. Where is it that Jesus is needing to be seen more clearly to you? Is it his forgiveness? His perfections are infinite and limitless. So let's just take a moment as a family to ask him, God, show yourself more clearly here. Give me spiritual sight here. If you're not a Christian, the most important thing you need is spiritual sight to see him as God who can save and show mercy to sinners and reconciling and reconcile you to himself.
That's what you need to see first and foremost. And those of us that are in Christ, that, that know him and, and see him as lovely and good and beautiful, let's ask him to help us in those areas where we just don't see him as that in his character, that he has said he is in his word. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would help us this morning. I pray that as we, as we take the Lord's Supper, that we be nourished and in some way you'd even provide spiritual sight through remembering your broken body and shed blood that we would see more clearly, more profoundly the relentless pursuit of you after us despite us. That we would understand more fully, Lord, the demands you've laid before us that lead to fullness of life and greatest joy. Help us to believe that is true. God, help us to be conformed more to Christ than to culture. Help us to be a people that scatter and love to be witnesses of your great name, that as you've transformed us, as you've given us spiritual sight, that God, we would give you great glory, that others would see that and praise your name. God, you reverberate your church. Father, we pray for those this morning who are spiritually blind. God, we love them. We pray that, God, you would open up their eyes to the glory that is your son, that you give them a hunger in their heart they never had for you, that you give them a desire to turn from their sin and turn to you, in seeing that you really are all that you said you are. God, would you assure them of your grace, assure them of your mercy, assure them of your kindness. God, those who are walking in pride who think they are too good for your needs and what you offer, I pray that you lower them and humble them. For those who think they are so far beyond the saving grace of Jesus, would you protect them from the despair? Lead us to Jesus, be our vision. May we see the man of sorrows who came and lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we couldn't die, and rose again, validating this is true and for you. May we treasure it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.